maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. And I don't know what's going to put it in. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. What is that right song? Hi there, you're listening to The Evening Glass with Luke and Fletch here on the One Sensational Shot Network and this is a new podcast where we take just a more casual look at some of the films that we've seen most recently or indeed any old dribble that happens to have been on at the movies or indeed on the the TV. This is uh, an episode which was actually recorded on election night so you may be able to hear some of the nerves in our voices at the time because uh, we had no idea what was going to go down. I don't think they'd even announced the um, uh, exit poll by that point. So uh, we talk a little bit about um, what's been happening over the past few weeks since I've been moving house and sadly hadn't recorded. So we get to talk about Alien Covenant. We respond to some listener feedback. And we also catch up on the first couple of episodes of the new series of Twin Peaks. So enjoy the podcast, guys. And Fletch will be right at the end of this podcast to let you know how to get in touch with us. Thanks very much. We're recording this. We're recording this on election night, and it's the distraction is more than welcome. Otherwise, I would be in my spare room with Sky News on, kind of just counting down the minutes until ten when we're calling it for Bill Murray. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love that if they just announced that. Oh, uh, uh, it was a late U-turn. You voted in Bill Murray. Yeah, right in candidate. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's a good job of this not a live show, so if not, we'd be subject to perder. My granddad used to stay up all night long uh, watching the elections. He would be up until, you know, what was it, three, four in the morning when they're really starting to call it? Yeah. And uh, he was one of those guys and uh, would then get up the next day and go to work. I guess he owned his own business, so that helped. But he was an architect, so uh, I'd like to think he wasn't then really tired, hungover, building lopsided houses or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, the, the builder says, uh, so John, what have you got for us? And it, he turns around and it's just like crayon drawings or something <laughs> with like, little smoke coming out of the chimney. Oh, I've got this. <laughs> yeah, using this. yeah the, the, the coverage of it reminds me of the all too frequent coverages of terrorist events we've seen over the last... 18 months, two years, and... What, when you have, like, an hour of analysis, which is of nothing, where it's, yeah. it's two people in the room saying, I think this one thing, but that might not be the case, and the other person says, I think the opposite thing, though, that may also not be the case, and everyone just talks about that for yeah. one hour. And they make it as exciting as they can, even though you're watching it for two or three hours in the evening and you know nothing's going to happen. They, they, at the very least, they try and put some showmanship behind it, don't they? Mm. You have the swingometer, you have a huge map of the UK that people can walk over and it, it, it lights up or whatever. They, they try and make it as almost like as much of a game show as they possibly can. So, so you think you're being entertained, uh, even though literally nothing is happening for several hours. <laughs> yeah, some of Jeremy Vine's stuff is just terrible. Three or four years ago, I watched him. He was dressed up as a cowboy with a with a six shooter. Uh, blasting away at tin cans, which each uh, had on <laughs> on their side the visage of a leader. But I was there la- two years ago, I suppose it was now, wasn't it? The last general election was 2015. Before that, the indie referendum. And after that, mm-hmm. the, the Brexit I'm losing, referendum. I'm losing track. But I'm losing track of all these. 2015, I'm pretty sure I was live subtitling when Paddy Ashdown said he'd eat his hat if those exit polls were correct. Well... Cheers for that one. And I think Andrew Neil held him to it. They gave him some kind of marzipan monstrosity. There's a lot of good things about what's happened over the last six weeks of campaigning, but people need to stay behind that. This is a partisan show. We're both broadly Labour. Mm-hmm. I'm a Labour member. All of the listeners mm-hmm. know that I'm a trade unionist. But the most important thing is that there's a strong opposition that holds the feet of the government to the fire. And I think we've just about got that now. But I'm nervous that all of the support that Corbyn has raised among mm-hmm. young people will yeah. dissipate like a melting snow if they well, don't. It was if raining. They... <laughs> it was raining on on election day, and uh, statistically speaking, I think it's the young that tend to not come out in the rain. I think. Or really, something. I was I was reading some conflicting reports around that. Although although I, I read another report that said. Oh, this isn't the case. We've looked into it or whatever, but um, I don't know. Tough one, tough one to tough one to gauge. I just need this mobilisation to continue. It because I'm nervous that 
younger people and we do that there's a, a conceit that younger people expect to get their own way that they feel entitled and when they get this knockback it's not an occasion to say politics doesn't work shouldn't have bothered the response should be we did all right let's keep going i need to speak with our listeners and one listener in particular alejandro becero who's out there now in Sevilla. Just about still waiting for his postal vote. Have I yet told you about what went down on that one? Well, this is partly attributable to my inertia. Alex's postal vote arrived here. And what I should have done upon its receipt was immediately send it out to him in Spain, where he's recently emigrated, migrated, economic migrant himself for the next six Mm -hmm. months. But I think it was a Thursday or a Friday, right before the bank holiday, and I thought, no problem. There's no point in doing it. Saturday is just going to wait at the depot until Tuesday with the bank holiday and all of that. So I sent it off on Tuesday, recorded, paid £7, and I thought, latest it's going to get there. Even with the manana manana attitude out there in the Iberian Peninsula, the latest will be Saturday morning in his hand. And I think he got it yesterday. Maybe. Right, wow. He was working, and uh, his esteemed companion, Susanna Lima, had to herself go down to... Postman Pedro's Depotado, and beg for, you know, uh, please, I I will sign his name in blood, just let me take this. So, I don't know, but I've disenfranchised Baker. Oh, no. (laughs) He's not a marginal, though, because he he wasn't voting for the constituency in Brentford, it was still his 114 constituency, which is Verenda Sharma, and as you might have seen, I I mentioned it earlier, but his majority is 18,000, so we're all right. Unless we see one of the greatest swings in London uh, political history. We're okay. It's uh, Ruth Cadbury, slightly south of here, and Rupert Huck, slightly north, who are in more marginal seats. But Labour's, this is the problem I have with, we need to diaspora ourselves. The problem with London is that everybody interesting is drawn to London. And we're all broadly progressive, broadly liberal, and a lot of us vote Labour. We need to go back to our hometowns and proselytise, and then we might get a broadly progressive country. Instead, we've got a a massive uh, surfeit of progressive types down in London, and Labour candidates are getting elected with massive majorities, and there's no chance that Blues will get in. We just need to do what baby Jesus did, uh, or rather baby Jesus' parents, and go back to your place of birth. Did you ever do do that song? We did that song. We did a musical when I was about... (laughs) When I was in primary school, we did that. Uh, it was Rome has said, you've got to be taxed for every penny you're worth. So hurry along as quick as you can back to your place of birth. It's the story of baby Jesus in the census. That's what we all need to do. I need to follow you. I, I need remember to get, that at all. <laughs> I need to get back out to Felix, though, and work with Dave Ablett, and then give it one or two election cycles, but we'll get this country up to speed. Because at the moment... This superabundance in four or five cities isn't really getting us where we need to be. Well, you know, you can uh, uh, come with me and spread the good word. I must, I must say, Norwich is fairly firmly uh, Labour most areas of it. So the reason we uh, have taken a bit of a break, although it wasn't through want of trying, but uh, I relocated, moved up to Norwich, Norfolk, where you and I went to university about ten years ago. So it's uh, definitely good to be back. Um, Funnily enough, you were saying we were saying about young people and, and maybe you know wanting to make sure that you were still. Um, I mean, no matter what colour you're voting for, don't uh, if if you don't get the result you you don't you don't want, then uh, uh, then you don't want to then uh, get um, disenfranchised and uh, upset about it, and then decide well politics isn't for me. What's what what good is it? Mm. And a fellow Norfolk resident, Mr. Adam Buxton, on his podcast had um, Adam Curtis, of course, who um, wow. Uh, of you know, filmmaker of uh, Bitter Lake and uh, most recently Hypernormalization, both mm. of which actually were on BBC iPlayer, and I recommend anyone go check those out. They're, they're really, really good documentaries about kind of where we are, where we are in the world, and um, really interesting narratives and really, really well put together. So um, Adam Curtis on his on uh, on the Adam Buxton podcast was actually sort of was saying that um, fifty years ago or whatever uh, or plus, people would. Um, give themselves to a cause more than they would now. And these days, I'm probably paraphrasing terribly, but these days there's, we're in an age of individualism and therefore you know, people think that their own mind and, and, and making up their own mind is, is absolutely vital. But people 
are less inclined to give themselves to a wider cause and continue to do so. He gave an example of um, the civil rights movement in America, where a lot of white college kids who support the civil rights movement would, you know, go and march with the black kids and um, get arrested, get um, get killed in, on occasion. Um, but, and no one remembers their names. They're lost, you know, to history. But they were, they were activists and they gave themselves to a cause because they knew that it was bigger than what they were. And maybe these days uh, he cites things like the Occupy movement, which really looked like they were getting some traction, but failed to kind of give a real solid narrative of what could actually be done to change the world in any meaningful way. And um, he, he cites that as an example, for, for instance. But uh, yeah, it was a really, really interesting chat and um, a really good thought about the young and the old and, and generationally how we, I suppose, perceive things. And uh, and I think politics is a really, really good example of that, where a lot of people think, well, you know, they're all a load of rubbish, aren't they? And it's like, well, yeah, they are. They probably always have been. But, um, but you know, give, give yourself to give yourself to a cause, give yourself to a movement. And I think this election out of any other in recent memory has had more more of that on offer. It has more it has been a polarized election and and i think the choice has been more stark than it has been in the past 15 or oh, mm, 10 or so years i suppose yeah at least this time this time we've been presented with different candidates you maybe you and i need to write a script uh that's a, you know a talking dog movie where we really do get hammer that point home in some way <laughs> And in the end, they saw the error of their ways. <laughs> it's those sorts <laughs> of things. Disney films, and specifically The Lion King, is a bugbear of mine. I like the Disney Renaissance. I never saw Little Mermaid, but Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, up to Hunchback, all fine films. But Lion King has terrible things to say. It establishes a monarchy. At every point, pushes home that that's for the benefit of that nation, that nothing else should be attempted. And who's excluded? homosexuals, uh, non-whites, and the mentally disabled. And I know it's funny, but that's what the, the film is telling us. Scar, played by Jeremy Irons, is definitely played as a kind of gay uncle. Whoopi Goldberg, black, Cheech Marin, Mexican, and then Ed, voiced by Jim Cummings, yeah. is um, mentally disabled. And they're pushed to the margins. It's no wonder that they want their slice of the pie when they're literally starving. And that's what that film yeah, has to yeah. say. And the, I've never never heard that that take on Lion King. The, Although I probably it all it's all there. It is all there on screen. You're the right. The maddest it's, thing. Um, the maddest thing is that Mufasa's sorry Simba's dad Mufasa is James L. Jones, darkest brother in the galaxy. His mother is Madge <laughs> Sinclair, who played James L. Jones's wife in Coming to America. So yeah. why Simba Matthew Broderick? It's a funny one, isn't it? <laughs> a great white saviour of the plains and as a kid he's um oh what's the actor's name the guy who's randy in home improvement is it john That's taylor thomas right? he was also in um that disney channel movie i'll be home for christmas with jennifer love hewitt right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, I, yeah i know it i know it <laughs> he had a big falling out with tim allen as well i think over um i, I think over money at some point and uh I know that he dropped out a few series of Home Improvement. I think managed to come back for the finale. Yeah, it was one of those classic sitcom things where someone's written out the show for a bit and hardly mentioned, and then yeah, then they come back. Yeah, which and there's an, <clears throat> a dividing line between old television and new television. Old episodic television did that so regularly. Yeah, because you were watching from one episode to the next week. You know, most people, well, maybe you'd even half forgotten what was on the previous week's episode. Uh, whereas now it is, it's so interesting to see the way things are cut and edited differently these days. Because, yeah. uh, you know, we, we watch and stream on Netflix a lot and um, a lot of the more modern shows, you can just go in, you know, and just keep going. Like you're, you're on the third one and you're not really missing a beat. Um, you just You can just quite easily go from one episode to the next. Whereas... I've been re-watching, I know you're not going to hate this, but I've been re-watching um, key episodes of Star Trek Next Generation. But what's quite interesting about watching Star Trek Next Generation again is that, you know, those episodes, uh, they're little, you know, morality plays, you know, and, and, and they have a beginning, a middle and an end. Mm. And, and you're so satisfied in those 40, 45 minutes of TV that you've seen a complete story play out and you've, re you've taken something from it, you know, it's the moral of the story, whatever it is, you know, Star Trek often works like that. And then and then the next one starts up, because Netflix tries to autoplay it, yeah. and you're like, well, I don't, I don't need to 
they're just starting another whole different story again. I don't need this. You know, I can wait to the next week or, or in my case, you know, a couple of days time and then watch another one. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of this stuff, you just sit there like a zombie, you know, uh, like you know, Walking Dead or whatever. And you just keep, keep going from one to the next. Mm. Yeah, well, you're right. That aspect of it is anathema to me. I'm rewatching Twin Peaks. Oh, the, but, uh, you're re- re-watching Twin Peaks because yeah. I was going to say actually I've been watching the new the new season. I was interested to hear what you thought about it. Well, I've only seen the first two. I'm re-watching it for the second time, so I think this is my third run through of Twin Peaks. Maybe God, you, fourth. And this are you stuck halfway through season two because it can get pretty <laughs> brutal in there somewhere, can't it? Um, we're still pelting along nicely, but only two or three episodes at a time and two or three nights a week so and it's revision if anything getting back into that milieu and finding reminding myself of the faults that I have with it and they're not the problems that I have with the original run of Twin Peaks is mainly problems of taste what Lynch is doing is true to himself and executed pretty well but there are things that aren't my bag there's maybe four or five actors who aren't up to it right and it's surprising to me what what surprises me is that Lynch went with it anyway but, the, but what I quite like about the original show as well is the cheesy aspect where it is the... I mean, they even watch the soap on the telly, don't they? The, yeah. It's yeah. The, soap, the soap within the soap. And it's almost... What I like about the original Twin Peaks, which the new season doesn't have, is the pastiche element. In the same way that, you know, the original Star Wars, none of the others really have this, but the original Star Wars is pure pastiche of, of um, Flash Gordon genre pictures. Mm. And um, yeah, there's other genres in there too. There's samurai or whatever. But I love the pastiche crash bang wallop element of the original just star wars film and the original twin peaks um series has that too that real take on a daytime soap and a lot of yeah. the performances bend and play to that uh which i which i quite enjoy the, the new series I, I won't go into into it if you haven't been watching but obviously the, the new series is just you know should it even be called twin peaks it's a mm. completely different it's pure david lynch and it's sumptuous as hell i i sit there enjoying every last minute of film when i'm watching the new twin peaks but i find it very difficult to really think that it's twin peaks you know it really is in name alone as far as i'm concerned it's interesting to me that it's come out at the same time as ridley scott's second of his new alien films because prometheus and covenant are now feeling more like the stories that ridley scott wanted to tell at this particular yes. time, which are Blade Runner-esque in their, in their exploration of humanity and the creative yeah, yeah, impulse yeah. and what it means to be human. So all of that stuff's like Blade Runner, but it does feel as though he, want, he had some stories to tell. He pitched them and they said, yeah, cool, maybe 40 for that. But, you know, if you made another Alien film, we'd give you 120 mil. Yeah. And he's, oh, yeah, um, yeah, Alien, cool. Yeah, dope. Yeah, I, I just about just about remember that. It's definitely gonna. There's gonna be aliens in there. Don't worry. I'll just and then he's making furious notes. Cool. Yeah, it's gonna all. It's all about the aliens. I mean, this guy David Walter uh, Mike Fassbender. He's 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 barely gonna be in it. It's gonna be so aliens coming out the goddamn walls. Don't don't worry. Don't worry yourself. It's pure aliens. And then we get to it, and it's really something completely different. And that's the thing I think that Lynch is doing. And I'm all for that kind of Trojan horsing. If I want Twin Peaks again. I can watch Twin Peaks. I'd like kind of interested in what those characters might be doing, but what I'm much, much more interested in, especially on this 10th anniversary year since the release of Inland Empire, which was Lynch's last cinema project, I'm so much more interested in whatever it is Lynch has to say. He's getting on as well, and his consumption of cigarettes and coffee would suggest he may not have another 30 years in him. Mm. And I'm... Thrilled. He's seventy something now, isn't he? Yeah, he started relatively late because Eraserhead took years to make. He was still studying. He did yeah. It's still still one of my top. I don't know twenty films. I, I love Eraserhead. That was one of my most formative uh, experiences as a as a young uh, young sort of film fan. And uh, you know, Jack Rundle of uh, my band, our band, The Waxing Captors, uh, introduced us to that. And we even had our name took our name from the character in the film, The Lady in the Radiator, and the band was briefly called that for about a year before we renamed mm. But And we used to play In Heaven, although I guess we were, uh, that was more a Pixies cover, but, you know, it's <laughs> in, 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 in a razor head. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, man, I love David Lynch. And, um, like I said, uh, every minute of film with the new show, I've been, it's just sumptuous is the only way I can use to describe it. It looks gorgeous. The performances are incredibly um weird odd off kilter and um it's just laying out new idea after new idea after new idea after new idea you know what i really felt 
about it. It felt like Mulholland Drive, the TV show, rather than Twin Peaks, the uh, the reboot. Yeah. Because um, I, I don't know if you ever saw Mulholland Drive, but obviously that famously was, um, what was it, 2001, 2002? But that famously was uh, supposed to be a pilot script, I think, for yeah. a new TV show. And then he just worked it into a movie. Uh, you know, none of the loose ends really tie up. It's just, uh, it, it's there. It's classic Lynch, just um, lots of disconnected ideas all, all put together and um, has that wonderful thing that all David Lynch films have for me, which is just a bad dream. And all David Lynch films have it to a greater or lesser extent. It's he, he, it's the truest... David Lynch pictures are the truest interpretation of what a bad dream feels like. Yeah, You feel like you're dreaming in any David Lynch picture. And yeah, I know people float through the air or whatever and, and that's, that's obvious. But there's other things too, like... Uh, just the sense and the feeling that you get, the ominous feeling that you'll often get and uh, you, when you're just waiting for something to pop. But also I'm thinking of uh, Wild at Heart, one of my other favourite David Lynch films with Laura Dern and um, Nicolas Cage. And I love the moment when Laura Dern turns on the radio in the car. And I, I, I think, does she know she's pregnant by that point? I can't remember. But anyway, on, she turns on the car radio and there's one bad news story after bad news story. The newscast is saying you know, 15 people were killed brutally and this, that and the other and it goes on and she, Laura Dern breaks down and she says, I can't take it. You know, this is so, what a terrible world to be in. And uh, it, that, I have dreams like that and I have dreams where, when, when um because I wake up to the radio and I mentioned it before, I kept kept waking up to these weird election results over the past 12 months and uh, thinking, Jesus, am I dreaming this? Is this happening? And yeah, yeah that's the way I feel often when, when, when I'm coming to. So anyway, a massive tangent, but man... You're right, and I think Twin Peaks, the new show, it's it's not it's not the uh, it's not the old TV show, but boy, oh boy, am, am I glad to hear anything uh, David Lynch has to say for himself. You make a good point. It's another example there. Mulholland Drive is another example where he tried it as a TV pilot, it failed, and then surely there were some discussions where they said to him, "Hey, time to make a new film, Dave. What have you got for us?" And he said. I'm kind of thinking of something on television. Now we're not doing that. Have you got any film ideas? Yeah. Yes, so I have, and it's definitely not something <laughs> from television. And he did he did the hotel room thing was on TV as well and on the air with Miguel Ferrer, which didn't work out that well, but I I'm in complete agreement about the way that Lynch it's almost primordial. He taps into he taps into fears that all humans have and is able to depict dreams and nightmares in the truest way I've ever seen. I speak with Neil Byrne about this a lot as well. The witch scene in Mulholland Drive. And also specifically, we were watching the first two episodes and the pan across the prison cells from Matthew Lillard. Empty oh cell. my God. Oh, cool. What's that? That's just the worst thing I've ever seen right there. Just uh, something black and horrific. And then it floats off. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that is still in my mind's eye. <laughs> What that, was that scene is just yeah, and that hasn't paid off yet. I mean, I'm not. I haven't watched the latest episode yet. I think I'm about four in. I mean, will will that ever pay off? I don't know. Who he knows? It, he does it every time, and it's as Byrne has said, the audacity in Mulholland Drive to explain exactly what's about to happen, and then show it, and it's still so frightening. The um the unease of Blue Velvet, and rewatching Twin Peaks, the scene of Maddie's murder. Uh, usually I'm irritated when filmmakers don't shoot in slow motion and then instead, later on, slow the film down. But with David Lynch, it's a clear artistic choice. And he slows the film down so it kind of, it has a certain shake to it and slows the audio down so it's a distorted... Instead of a high-pitched, shrill scream, it's... Yeah. Uh, and it never loses its power astonishing stuff and yeah for these reasons Twin Peaks is good I like a lot of those characters some of the performances were ropey some of them were intentionally ropey and some of the time I don't Lynch got whatever he wanted out of the cast but it didn't chime with me I think that Michael Ontkeen ranges from dreadfully wooden to good yeah. doesn't usually get above good but he can be good he's dependable in some of it the, the first two or three episodes he's in and the stuff with Joan Chen as Josie Packard, that stuff doesn't work for me. But as much as Twin Peaks is enjoyable and that, the milieu of that town and the, the balance, 
I'm more interested in what could be the last missives from David Lynch, I think one of the greatest North American directors to have ever worked. I think it's as few as eight films from him. We can probably count them now, and this again, it will take about 12 seconds. Eraserhead, Elephant Man, Dune, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Firewalk With Me, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire. That's nine films in yeah, 40 yeah. years bastard give us more this is what i felt over the last decade lynch why do you hate us so give us more <laughs> but there's other stuff We're too desperate. i mean like you said the tv shows but uh, one of lex's favorite um records is the um david lynch collaboration with sparkle horse dark knight of the soul yeah yeah and uh there's there's just little projects like that that um that David Lynch gets involved in. So uh, he, he I, I, I remember him saying before, he just likes to create things. I imagine yeah. he's someone who just, who does just puts things together. Somebody probably yeah. likes to do things with his hands a lot. And um, I think sometimes it's film and sometimes it's just something else completely different. I think he likes working with people, collaborating and just making things. Yeah. He's done plenty of short films as well. And all of these things are accessible. And I remember a full 15 years ago now, he was, he had a web series called rabbits in the infancy of oh, what yeah. we would now consider to be the proper internet. Yeah. And that was in... I saw, I saw some of that, and that was interesting. David Lynch is kind of the opposite of Terry Gilliam. I like Terry Gilliam, but it's very rare that his films are completely worthwhile. Terry Gilliam's relentlessly creative narrative cinema and directing is not the best way to funnel his creativity. It's worked properly three or four times, and then there's two or three other times where it's kind of... Uh, you could call it brilliant but only because you're overlooking a good 40 minutes of the film whereas david lynch is relentlessly creative and doesn't bother with cinema most of the time but when he does every time it's astounding what we will do over the course of over the course of the year's podcasts we'll certainly go back to inland empire one of his purest and most rewarding not enjoyable but definitely most rewarding films because we're on its 10th anniversary this year we'll schedule that for later in the year and I think that over the next few weeks, we'll also talk more about Twin Peaks. Once I've caught up a little bit, I've only, as I say, I've seen only two episodes. And if my last word on the subject, although you're welcome to continue, is that as a, uh, as obtuse as some of those two, three hours were of those first two episodes, the reward was chromatics, the majestic romance and yeah. pure nostalgia, as Burns said of uh, Hurley coming back in, a character who I never loved because yeah, he's kind yeah. of a, he's a kind of a boring character who only gets more boring. And yeah, I think James yeah. Marshall did what he could with it. But again, young actor under Lynch's direction, Lynch wants something quite specific and it may not connect with everyone. And so Hurley comes into the bar with what we presume, I've, I've presumed is his son. And Merchinamic sees him and says... No, no, James is just quiet now. He had a motorcycle accident. James is cool. James has always been cool. And suddenly I felt tremendous nostalgia and warmth for a character I'd never loved. Mm. The power of Lynch there was phenomenal. Absolutely through through filmmaking, the framing, then the move to the close-up. I had to watch it three or four times. And that's the beauty of what Lynch can achieve. Yes, he can chill us to our bone, placing a camera and having it pan slowly across an empty lounge. <laughs> and it, it's always lounges, isn't it? These negative spaces. So Lynch can do that, but at the same time, he understands that razor's edge between a kind of mawkish sentimentality and actual pure joy. And that's why Julie Cruz, for instance, works so well in his stuff. That was the reward after, for novices... They were thrown in the deep end with those first two episodes. Oh god, yeah, they were. They were. I mean, and I, I think, my days. I mean, I, I, I've, I've watched three and four, and there's not a huge difference. To tell you the truth, it's, uh, it, it, it's there. But um, yeah, we will, we'll move on. Uh, one thing I should say is a ten, la uh, ten year anniversary of Inland Empire, forty year anniversary of Eraserhead as well, because that was seventy seven. So uh, there yeah. we go. <laughs> there's yeah. a symmetry there. Um, you, mentioned you know what? Before go you on. go on. What I sometimes think about is you doing George Lucas saying, "Say, uh, Dave, I, uh, I saw that eraser head. Would you, uh, uh, would you like to take a crack at a Jedi?" He just, how does David Lynch say, <laughs> "Not my particular brand of coffee." Have at it, though. Best of luck. Because <laughs> whenever I think of Lynch now, I think of Golden Cold. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Sounds um... delicious, Coop, but I already ate. <laughs> 
he actually does talk about that. He's on the record um, talking about Return of the Jedi being offered um, offered the directing gig, and uh, you can go on the internet. It's all very accessible. It's very easy to find. And uh, he talks about um, going there and go, going up to the ranch and having lunch and being shown into the art department and looking at a lot of the maquettes, I guess, and the stuff being made, the concept art, and um, I don't know if it was specifically about an Ewok or, or what. I think one of the articles I've read over the years has, has mentioned that he didn't like Ewoks. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But he, I do remember the David Lynch quote, and I think there's even video of him saying this, is that he left there with a terrible headache. And he kind of <laughs> le- leaves it at that, which I think is really, such a... I left with a really bad headache. And then uh, he just didn't want to do Jedi. That was not the one for him. Um, but yeah, I mean... I guess what year was Elephant Man? Was it eighty one? Eighty, eighty, and then June eighty so, four. Yeah, so he he did June after Je- uh, after he would have been offered Jedi. So George must have seen Elephant Man must have just come out and been making money. That's what they, he must have seen. And somehow in in Elephant Man he saw a film that um he saw he saw a director for Return of the Jedi. That's a really interesting interesting one. I mean, what a world would live in if. Uh, if, if David Lynch had directed Return of the Jedi, that would have been quite a different different, uh, different take on things. But I digress. I should move on. And uh, there, I was I had all my movie tickets from the films that I caught um, since we have been on a mini hiatus for the podcast for around 10 weeks. But I've got to confess, I haven't seen anywhere near the amount of films um, that I thought I had seen. I've got a few here, but it's kind of dull stuff. The one I did want to talk about, um, just purely because... Uh, I've been doing, listeners of the show will know, I've been doing my DVD A to Z, where I literally go through my DVD collection from A to Z, and uh, we just talk about each film and our sort of how we uh, are aware of it and our relationship to it as, as, we, as we get there. We're still in the A's, and we did, uh, recently we did all the four Alien films, by pure coincidence, then of course we had Alien Covenant, Fletch, you mentioned it earlier as well, about the fact that... Um, to a certain extent, Ridley Scott's kind of making... He's called Alien, but he's kind of <laughs> obviously making a film maybe that he, he wants to try and make. But I thought we'd talk about it and get some um, listener feedback as well because this um, our good friend Will Ludkin uh, emailed into the Hello, show. Will. He actually went, he went on to onesensationalshot.com and he filled out the form and got in touch with the show. And um, Fletch, you remember Will, obviously, he was on my stag do a little while ago. Mm. And, uh, we, were catching we had a up couple of fun conversations, I think, about the Aliens films. Mm. <clears throat> so anyway, he says, hey guys, just caught up the latest episodes. Great as always, and looking forward to more of Luke's film backstory. You probably know what I'm going to ask, because I threatened this in the peaks, with Alien Covenant releasing uh, the prologue, Last Supper. Do you remember that? They released this, this uh, short film called Last Supper, which was the prologue to the Alien Covenant movie. Do you remember that, Fletch? It was on no, social I, media. No, I didn't watch it. Yeah, it was, it was um, really dull. Or it, was just, <laughs> it, was just the, it was just the characters of the ship um, talking about uh, we're on a really big journey, and it kind of introduced the fact that it was um, uh, a um, colonization mission. With Alien Covenant releasing the prologue Last Supper... Is this the prequel Prometheus was intended to be? As in, how true it was to the original Alien. Personally, I don't think Prometheus was that bad. However, I appreciate they've only seen it once. Um, possibly through fear of the adage, it gets worse the more times you see it. Because I think it's referring to uh, your quote, Fletcher, mm. when you said, Prometheus is the only film that gets worse the more times you watch it. Uh, he goes yeah. on, from our, from our conversations previously, I didn't appreciate the changes uh, of the name of the planet and other subtle strains from the original story. So perhaps that's why I enjoy it, as in Prometheus. Anyway, I can feel I'm on the verge of rolling into a ramble and being too aware rolling into a ramble back to being too aware how that affects the enjoyment of films if you can find some content in my message great if not just chuck it in the trash cheers <laughs> will so that was uh, will Lukin. and yeah i mean i guess ultimately his point is that they made prometheus um it was originally going to be a pretty straight alien sequel as we know some of the early drafts that are pretty pretty easy to find on the internet uh were, was a very very straight alien prequel uh and then of course uh they rewrote prometheus heavily to the point where they made it increasingly obtuse and less connected from the Alien, uh, original 1979 Alien movie. And then, of course, Covenant coming out, he was thinking, obviously, like you said, Fletch, that it was now branded Alien as opposed to, you know, being so obtuse it had a completely different name. Mm. And uh, is this the prequel that we were supposed to get? So 
I suppose you've already answered this to a certain extent, Fletch, but Alien Covenant. Uh, did you think this was the Alien prequel we were uh, we we deserved, or was it the Alien prequel we needed? <laughs> so my first impression was that it's a slightly better film than Prometheus, but it's never as good as Prometheus is. Prometheus is 30% great and almost literally 70% terrible. Whereas Covenant is more like 20% ace, 10% awful, and then the rest is bog standard. I was particularly Mm. disappointed with the role given to Amy Simetz, who I like from a lot of independent films. She works with some mumblecore directors out of New York. She was also in Upstream Colour by Shane Carruth. So the first, one of the first problems um, uh, narratively Ten. with Covenant was one which Prometheus also suffered from, and that's that people are acting... The decisions being made by genius scientists and experienced engineers are the decisions of teenagers in slasher films. And uh, Ridley Scott and his editors, maybe even the producers as, as well, they've cut to the bone... They've cut the films to the bone so that things that would explain those decisions are taken out. So half the time they're nonsensical because after Covenant, I did a lot of background reading, spent about half an hour going through various websites. And there are justifications for a lot of the things that don't make sense that happen in Prometheus and Covenant, but they're not there on the screen because at the last moment Ridley's taken them out or they were lost in the second of seven drafts. You could call this an an Abramsification of Hollywood cinema. I'm kind of loath to use that term, although everybody will know what I mean, because Abrams himself is a capable director, I think one of the better action directors working today. But too much of his work relies upon what ten years ago would have been check out the MySpace page and it will all become clear, and now is more about wait for the sequel or we're lining up a prequel... You, yeah. I mean, you and I used to read novelizations, and they would include uh, what was essentially deleted scenes because they were working from a shooting script or an earlier draft. Yeah, but sure. You, yeah, you didn't. It was mainly supplemental material. It usually you didn't usually need to read the novelization to understand the film that you just watched. And if that's yeah. what has to happen, <laughs> then you haven't succeeded in making a film. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, what What are the other problems I had with Covenant? It was largely boring. There were a few it good was, action sequences, yeah. but nothing that reached the heights of the DIY abortion in Prometheus. What they did to Numa Rapace was as insulting as what Fincher did with Hicks and Newt. Yeah. Except Ridley didn't do it with the verve of Fincher. We've talked about Fincher before as a something of a punk provocateur. Looking yeah. at his oeuvre now, sorry, oeuvre. I always struggle Oof. with that word. Looking at his oeuvre. Looking at his oofs, his fried oofs, his uh, <laughs> Wevos Revoltos. Looking at his work now, you can grant him a lot of leeway with Alien 3. Yeah. Um, but let's be honest, like Ridley's output as a director isn't up there with Fincher. Even though Fincher's only been working half as long as Ridley, Ridley's he's still coasting on two good sci-fi films, two epochal sci-fi films, admittedly, mm. made... 30 to 40 well 35 to 40 years ago and since then most of his work contains beautiful images and some interesting stuff i particularly like elements of black rain but that's one of the problems i have he just doesn't he doesn't care you look at covenant and the in particular the the interior scenes between david and walter look sumptuous and any of the scenes lit by fire when the shuttle explodes, all of that mm. looks tremendous. Yeah, it does, yeah. But Ridley doesn't care that it's in service of a really ropey plot with zero characterization, dull performances. It's very it's very frustrating as somebody, uh, as a, a cinema-goer, because uh, you and I, we, we are going to see a new Alien film, but more than anything else, we're going to see what we hope will be a really good film. We'd like to be entertained and somewhat challenged. But... We don't we don't get that. How did well? I, I've gone on. How did you feel? Well, yeah. I mean, I think Ridley Scott's uh, output's patchy at best, to tell you the truth. And um, I, you know, for for every The Martian, which I do think's great, uh, there's 
Robin Hood or something, you know, like, which yeah. is just, you know, quite dull and, and forgettable. And uh, I guess the script's just, just not there. But yeah, you're right. It looked absolutely phenomenal. Um, and I tucked in, I, my expectations were rock bottom. I was not expecting much from this film whatsoever. Um, because the fact they even had called it Alien, I thought was, um, you know, admission that Prometheus didn't do what it was supposed to do and uh, whether or not financially or creatively or whatever. But I I felt like it was almost a cop out to suddenly go, okay, now we've branded it Alien. Uh, Are you happy now? Uh, I I instantly lost respect for them when... um, when they did that. And I, I guess it's a bit like what Will said when he fed back as well. Is this the prequel we were supposed to get, do you think? And um, uh, I kind of felt like, say, you know, th- I guess I did feel to myself like, well, if you'd have called it Alien Covenant a few years ago, maybe I'd have been a bit more excited. But anyway, I digress. I think um, I think the weird thing is, like, it was completely forgettable. Um, I... There's the other problem as well, to, to raise a simplistic point, is that in, in, t- in talking about the kind of mythology of the alien films, it really delves into how they were, the aliens were created, the xenomorphs were created. You know, it's a bit of a letdown. You go to tell the backstory and then you know a bit too much and, the, you know, apparently Michael Fassbender, you know, engineered them uh, to create the perfect organism. Um, and the, the original movie worked so well because it was an alien on a spaceship and uh, it was unknown, and that was that was the point. That was the dual meaning of it. It was, you know, a, an alien as in an extraterrestrial, but also an alien, you know, entity. It was alien to anything that you were aware of. And I think that now explaining where they kind of came from was um, a little bit of a, a shame. And just the plot holes upon plot holes upon plot holes upon plot holes that I can't even be bothered to try and unravel. Yeah, so, like, why yeah. why when they get to the... Why when they... When Michael Fassbender is explaining what's happened in between the two films why did he why did he go to the planet of the engineers why did he kill them all with the black goo the black oil why did he have to do that um why didn't they know he was coming what why when they find him uh in covenant are they not why do they trust him when he's standing amongst a thousand corpses? Like, why is any of this happening? Yeah. Uh, Welcome to uh, my I... crib. Who are all the dead people? Oh, don't worry about them. Are they? Were they guests? Ah, uh, listen, they were. Yeah, it's a fixer-upper. Yeah. So, and I felt like it was odd, and and I was, I was, I felt myself trying to go back to Prometheus, thinking, so hold on, the engineers like created life on Earth. What to kill it? To I mean, it's my own fault, really. Maybe I should have done my homework a bit more. But I really don't think any of this stuff makes sense anymore. No, no. I, but no, you, it's entirely reasonable for you to not do homework going into a film. Mm. It needs to stand alone. We've we're in this. We've entered an era where it's necessary to have crib notes for what, and not for a, not for the reasons that might have some virtue to them. For instance, knowing what Dunkirk was before you go and see the film Dunkirk or understanding anything about baseball before Moneyball. A good film will provide context for you. You've reminded me intensely of a Patton Oswalt bit. He's talking with George Lucas and he says, man, I love those Star Wars films. And and George says, oh, really? Well, uh, you know, I'm going to be making some, uh, I'm going to be making some prequels. Say, do you... uh, do you like Darth Vader? Oh man, I love Darth Vader with the lightsaber and the helmet. Incredible. What does Darth Vader do? Oh well, uh, he's a kid and uh, his mother dies and uh, he's pretty sad. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, but uh, uh, do, do do you like uh, do you like Boba Fett? Boba Fett, yes, Slave One, the jetpack, bounty hunter, <laughs> superb. What does Boba Fett get up to? Oh well, uh, you know, uh, his dad dies and then then he's 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 pretty sad. <laughs> Oh, I feel terrible, George. Oh, would you like something to cheer you up? Would you like some ice cream? Well, uh, I, I don't have any ice cream, but here's a big bag of rock salt. <laughs> and then it, eventually the punchline is like, hey, guys, hey, kids. Angelina Jolie, does she give you a big old boner? Well, here's John Voight's ball sack. And it, it's just that notion that we've, we've, we've entered into again with the Alien films. I don't... I don't care. Patton doesn't care. You don't care how the things that we like, which are cool, became the things we like. We don't need to know about it. Demystifying them is usually a terrible idea. I need someone to sit down and explain it to me. Because there's a xenomorph on the door in Prometheus at one point, isn't there? Uh, I'm sure there is. So, 
but then they were created after. I don't get it. And you can't tell me it's all going to just be explained in a sequel. This is this is getting absurd. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, in answer yeah. in answer to the user feedback, uh, user feedback, our listener feedback, will. Thanks very much for writing in. It really was kind of you. And it, I, I know that we have talked at length, actually, over a beer uh, about how you enjoy listening to the show. And I think that I do think that's really awesome. And um, it's always very heartening to know you, you're listening in. And um, but in, in answer to your question, I, I don't I don't think that um, Covenant was the prequel we were supposed to get either. I, I really have no clue what's even going on with this stuff anymore. And um, none of us should care. We see this. We could talk for a while about when it started. Maybe it's the Lord of the Rings. I'm not sure because they. It makes yeah, sense it was, to make was, three films out of those three books. And it was Lord Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and I think also the Star Wars prequels. And even though they'd been the original tri- trilogy, it was that same era, wasn't it? Of yeah. Um, everything can be drawn out to three or whatever the hell. The early 2000s where people realised, studios realised you could really string this stuff out. It was, you didn't have to do a straight adaptation anymore. Yeah. You could uh, you could turn it into a franchise and, and, and uh, build a world. You yeah. know, that was what it's all about. I think to try to sum it up for Will succinctly, on the podcast we've talked about the four original Alien films and how each of them had a strong authorial presence and had a strong creator behind them, a strong visualist. They're of varying quality, but those people had their own ideas, left their imprint, and as we said about Genet, he was incredibly happy with what he did, no regrets whatsoever, and that film's memorable to us. There's lots of problems with it, but there's also many memorable images and facets of it. And so what should have happened was the Alien franchise should have been given to, not necessarily Blomkamp, who's been talked about, but somebody who had a reverence for it, but had new ideas. Instead, because you don't want somebody to, be, somebody to be so craven to it that they can't experiment and explore, but you do need someone who can bring an element of uh, vitality to it, a younger person. Instead, Ridley Scott's been given the reins, and he has zero interest in the alien. All of his interest is Michael Fassbender. And I don't blame him. Michael Fassbender is a fantastic actor. He's really good as David. And David's an incredible character. But Mm. he's getting buried first within a franchise in which he doesn't necessarily belong. Secondly, below in a in substandard films that don't deserve his presence. And then thirdly, this the weight of this mythology, which keeps unpacking. And getting wider and more convoluted. And it's it's not going to work. So, yeah, I think the answer to the question is, while Ridley Scott's still in charge of the Alien pictures, we'll never get an Alien prequel. We may be lucky enough with the third attempt to get a very good David picture. But that's the best we'll get. I So there's two two things I was going to say on that. First, I, th- I don't know if Covenant's doing the business Prometheus was doing. So I wonder if we'll even get another one, to be honest with you. Uh, and it was clear that Prometheus slightly underperformed which is why they rebranded it back to Alien. But the other thing I was going to say is, and I, I think other people have said this as well, I hasten to add, but I'll say it on this podcast too. Um, the Those original four, and I think this is the point you were broadly making as well, are riffing on a similar thing. You know, each each director did their own thing with the, the same idea, and they're all really unique. It's it's this, it's a, they're all, I, I know that some are action pictures, this, that, and the other, but they're all this kind of aliens in corridors on a spaceship what do you guys want to do with that? Yeah. Whereas this film, um, you know, these two prequel films don't. They're, they're, it's a completely different thing. Um, like we talked about Twin Peaks earlier. It's it, it, it's not. They're not really alien pictures. What was funny about this one is like it was the last thirty minutes, wasn't it? Like the last twenty minutes that they they lift off the planet, and I'm like, okay, that was a pretty good finale. And then they they suddenly it's like they suddenly remember it's an alien film. Like oh yeah, it's an alien film. Quick, do the stuff we said we were gonna do for Fox. And then they have them running around the spaceship in the last 20 minutes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're locking the airlocks and all that kind of thing. And, I mean, a short of them having a flamethrower, I think that was about the one thing that wasn't in the picture. Like, the, the, all the other tropes were there that in the last 20 minutes. It felt so tacked on, like a completely different film. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. So it goes, chestbursters and backbursters and facehuggers 
and Michael Fassbender. Who knows what adventures they'll have between now and the time that the franchise becomes unprofitable. You've been listening to The Evening Glass with Luke and Fletcher, a depository for our movie musings, a frequently infrequent guide to the impending month in cinema. One sensational shot believes in a living wage for living stuff, and that is why we are boycotting Picture House and Cineworld. We hope that you will join us in that boycott. Please get informed, stay in touch, check out our website, onesensationalshot.com. Keep listening to the podcast, contact us on Facebook, it's One Sensational Shot. Until next time. Dark and dusty, painted on the sky, misty taste of moonshine, teardrop in my eye, country road. Take me home to the place